I woke up and I had holes in my chest where the blood had come out and in my neck where the blood had come out. So if I were not a Jewish Zionist atheist, I could have applied for sainthood in the Catholic Church. And I'd lost the use of three limbs because of ischemia, lack of blood circulation. I had partial use of my left arm and hand, and that was it. And my doctor came and made a house call, the same doctor who thanked me for teaching him about chronic fatigue syndrome. House calls were impossible in those days, period. But he made a house call anyway. So he sat again next to me toward the foot of my bed, and he said, I have to send you for the following seven tests. And I basically said, fuck that. I can't even get up and down my stairs. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. At the end of part one of my interview with the iconic Howard Bloom, he just told us about getting the flu, but instead of getting better in a few days, he got much sicker. Nobody who gets the flu thinks they will not recover. We all assume we'll feel crappy for a few days and then get back to work. Just like how we initially thought survivors of the COVID virus would get back to their pre-COVID health. But now we're hearing reports of ongoing fatigue and neurological symptoms in a significant number of people who've had COVID. Research of the SARS pandemic and other viral infections tell us that not everyone will recover. Some people will develop myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome or ME-CFS, like Howard Bloom did. As the COVID pandemic settles into our nations and neighborhoods, and we wait for treatments or a vaccine, we have to wonder how many people with COVID will remain very sick and disabled by ME-CFS. And will you be one of them? Now, here's part two of my interview with Howard Bloom, the author of the newly released book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me. But in the interview, Howard shares how he coped with being mostly bedbound for 15 years and what protocol of medications he's using to keep himself healthy and being able to pursue truth in science. 
If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you've had your own experience with medical error and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. As always, a word of warning, some people may be triggered by Howard's experiences with the healthcare system. So one staff member got under this armpit, another staff member got under this armpit, and they dragged me to the elevator and threw me into a car as if I were a sack of potatoes. And I lay there in the back until we got to my house, and I don't know how I made it up the stairs, because I live on the fourth floor. And I didn't leave that bed, that bedroom, my bedroom, for the next three months. And a good part of it took two weeks to think and two weeks to speak. Content. Because I didn't have the energy to be depressed, and I didn't have the energy to be unfulfilled and driven. Not at all. My wife got my daughter's roommate to babysit for me, and I spent three months just watching movies. And a good part of it took two weeks to think and two weeks to speak. And then I got better. I figured, okay, it was just a really bad flu. What are your doctors saying during this? I didn't see any doctors. I couldn't get out of the bed. Doctors had ceased to make house calls in those days. There were no doctors to help. When I became better, I went to see a fancy doctor in Manhattan who gave me a fancy illness that I'd never heard of before, something like Duchenne's syndrome. And when you look it up, there are no treatment modalities, so the term is virtually meaningless and wrong. He was wrong, um, despite his degrees on the wall from Vanderbilt University and all of his honors. And, uh, and I got to the point where I could walk seven miles. We didn't have pedometers in our phones yet. And then one day, I had John Mellicamp playing at Madison Square Garden, which is a really big deal for John, and I was very close to him extremely close. Um, I had the Scorpions playing at the Meadowlands, and I had Cindy Lauper graduating from high school. In other words, Cindy had not, she'd been a high school dropout. She is one of the most talented people you will ever, ever see in your life, Cindy Lauper. Astonishment. Her high school was giving her an honorary high school diploma because of her accomplishments. So I had those three things happening in one day. First, I had to go out to the Meadowlands. Scorpions were opening for Metallica, and the audience was standing. It was an outdoor stadium. And here we were standing for two hours. Then I had to go into town and see John Mellencamp backstage, which was most unsatisfactory. Under normal circumstances, I would have been watching his entire concert. And then I had to go out to Queens to catch up with Cindy Lauper. That day broke me. 
And I started showing symptoms so bizarre that it was unbelievable. On a day when it was 98 degrees and everybody else wanted to open the windows and everything, I would be freezing. I'd be shivering with cold, with my teeth chattering. If somebody opened the window in my brownstone, the breeze, the draft would hit me like a fly swatter as if I were the size of a flea. And so I had to forbid everybody, don't open the windows. Can you imagine that? On a 98 degree day. And on days when it was 40 degrees, I would be overheated and sweating. My thermoregulatory system was totally off base, totally shocked. I had no idea what the fuck was happening to me. So I went into work one day and I was wearing a Thinsulate just vest all the time because of these thermoregulatory problems. And I had probably been to my family doctor. At some point I went to my family doctor. And my family doctor could not diagnose what I had. So I, I sat my staff down in my office and I said, I don't know what's happening to me. For all I know, I could be dying. All I know is I cannot be here anymore. I cannot work from this office anymore. So I'm giving you the business. And the next day, one of my competitors called and offered me $350,000, which was a lot of money back then, possibly a million dollars now for the business. And I said, I can't sell it to you. I gave it to my staff yesterday. And I told them in two weeks, I will be gone. I will disappear. So two weeks later, I disappeared in, and went into my bedroom and didn't come out for another 15 years for all practical purposes. I went, when I went to see my doctor, I said, look, I think what I've got, because I was doing a lot of studying, is chronic fatigue syndrome. And he said, basically, there is no real such thing as chronic fatigue syndrome, forget about that. Um, and three years later, he came to me and said, thank God you educated me about chronic fatigue syndrome, because I've been seeing it in a lot of my patients. So that was it. When you had the relapse that led to the 15 years being bed bound. Well, uh, I didn't know it was a relapse. I mean, who knew what I was in for? Yeah. Back to the question. Yeah. How did you deal with it that time? Well, first of all, you have to understand the cognitive aspect of this. When you have an illness without a name, it's like you don't have an illness. You are not on the map of humanity. One of the things you realize very quickly with chronic fatigue syndrome is there is a map of reality that everybody agrees to. And if you are off that map, it is scary. And because it is scary to other people, they don't even acknowledge it cognitively. And you feel like you're not part of the human race anymore. And if you lose the ability to walk, I lost the ability to speak for five years. For five years, I could not utter a single syllable. I lost the ability to have another person in the room with me. And when things like that happen to you, you lose your sense of humanity. You suddenly realize that your sense of identity as a human being was attached to those things you felt you would accomplish in your future. 
And now every single one of them is impossible. And you are stripped of a sense of being human. And before that, you didn't even know you had a sense of being human. Now you know it because it's gone. And it is more unsettling and painful than I can possibly describe to you to no longer be anywhere on the human map. And it took me three years to rebuild an identity. And I rebuilt that identity in the only place where I could walk around, cyberspace. So thank God for cyberspace, or I might not have made it through this illness. So cyberspace became your escape like uh, working had become your escape from Well, for three years, the first three years of this illness, my first three years bound in my bedroom, basically. Um, I tried to get up every day and walk to my front room and sit in my favorite, my favorite work chair and sit at my desk and get work done. And at first, I worked my way to being able to do it for nine hours a day. And then I had a relapse. I couldn't do it at all. And then by increments of 15 minutes a day, I worked my way up to eight hours a day and then had a relapse. And then I started from zero again with 15 minutes a day, worked my way up to six hours. In other words, the peaks that I could reach were constantly diminishing in size. And then it occurred to me, I have a limited piggy bank of energy. And I am spending too much of it trying to sit up and work at a desk. If I lay in a bed and nurse that energy, I will be better off. And in fact, eventually, because I was laying in the bed and no longer calling on my energy to sit up, I got my voice back. But meantime, I had my assistant set up two computers next to the bed, because in those days, two computers had less power than the power of the computer in your cell phone. And we bought a Chinese box. Don't let anybody tell you the Chinese have never invented anything. They invented this frigging box, and this was the early 1990s, from which I could control two computers using one monitor and one keyboard. And we got the kind of foam that's used in your furniture. And we created these bolsters, triangular bolsters, and taped them to the keyboard so that laying totally flat in the bed, I could see my keyboard. And I was, now I had access to a whole new world. I had been on the internet since, I, since 1983. I've been longing for the internet ever since DARPA put it into existence and only college professors could get access to it. I was so jealous of those college professors. It was ridiculous, but it was roughly 1991. And the, it, the things like the World Wide Web had not been invented yet. Search engines had not been invented yet. Amazon had not been invented yet. So when I showed up online in 1983, I think it was, the internet was such a cold and lonely place that Peter Gabriel saw that I was on and immediately grabbed hold of me and said hello. But at any rate, so the internet literally was the only place I could walk around. My friend, friend Douglas Rushkoff, a fellow author, and a fellow philosophical thinker. Douglas um, Rushkoff said, look, I've been offered this gig 
Um, they're not paying anything. Why don't you do it? You're willing to do things that don't pay. I can't do that, he said. Um, so it turned out to be with an art college in Pasadena. And guess what they had created? The world's first virtual world. And I could go up into their virtual world anytime I wanted and walk around simply by manipulating my cursor and my mouse pad. And so it was the only place I could go and take an afternoon walk while laying there flat in my bed. And I discovered the art of on, uh, online romance. Why? Because I had no, I couldn't even talk. I couldn't even talk. But most days I could type. Not always. Sometimes I couldn't lift my hands to the keyboard. And on those days I could not type. But most days, at least I would type. And I became a Lothario online. And I realized that under normal circumstances, hey, we have bodies we did not choose. So when you are online, souls meet without the impediment of these arbitrary bodies that aren't really us. I thought it was an astonishing, astonishing. And I, in those 15 years in bed, I formed two international scientific groups and ran them. And I wrote three books. And I got my first book published. And I got my second book published. The real hiccup, and it was miserable. It was horrible. I was in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement gets your mind to produce pains of a kind that no one's ever experienced because there are no words for them. There are literally no words for these pains and they are a torture. They are a nightmare. They are hideous. Why? Because we are built for social contact and without it, our body starts to go apoptotic. Apoptosis is pre-programmed cell death and your body turns apoptotic. It is horrible. And six years into this, which would have been 1994, my wife, the only thing I had left in my life were two things. The book I had started before I got sick. It was more than half done by the time I was sick. Now my life had to be books. Remember, as a child, I was a total loner. And I was raised by books the way that Mowgli in the Jungle Book is raised by wolves. So I owed my life to books. And, uh, and the obligations I owed to my society were books. Books are me, period. So I was left with my books, but I only had half a book. And I was left with my marriage of 34 years. And then in 1994, my wife decided to divorce me. And she had been going up to Kingston, New York to help take care of her mother who had Alzheimer's and leaving me alone for up to three days at a time, alone in the apartment. It was horrible. It was more horrible than I can convey in words. When she came back once, I begged her, please stop leaving me alone for these three day periods. And she said, 
I'm going to leave you even more alone. And she started going up to Kingston for longer periods of time. And then one day, separated from me and started living in Kingston, where her mother was. One day, and when she would, and, and I found two people who, in exchange for my daughter's former, my stepdaughter's former bedroom, would feed me in clothing, take care of doing my laundry, and make sure that I had meals. And my wife hired one of them to take care of the house. What she was really doing was gaining the allegiance of this person to her, not me, and turning this person into a spy in my house. And Linda would call these two people who were taking care of me when she came down from Kingston. And one day she showed up without calling, which was very unusual. And she sat in the living room waiting for something couldn't tell what. And then a little person who looked like a walking uh, callus, a figure straight out of a Damon Runyon novel, uh, a little woman who just looked, had an appearance of a kind I had never seen before. So Linda brought her into my bedroom, and I stood up, which was not easy, and put my hand out because I figured if this is a friend of Linda, then it's a friend of mine. And she put a piece of paper in my hand and walked out. And it was whatever you call that legal document that tells you it's a divorce. First of all, every tiny little thing sent my stress system into a, into a situation that drove me into a relapse. So I had to be shielded from stress. But so I, but nonetheless, I decided that even though it was totally against my health interests, I better read this damn piece of paper. And I read it. And it said, if you don't answer it in 20 days, you lose everything you have, including the bed sheets that you're lying on. And lawyers were going to be gone. Until well after that 20 day period, 20 day period had ended. So my wife brought a teddy bear. And she said she still wanted to be friends. Fuck that. I've never talked to the bitch since. That was Pearl Harbor. That was as nasty as you can get. And I somehow managed to find a lawyer when I barely talked. And then I just had to ignore the case and let him carry it out. He tried to get a, uh, whatever it's called, a disability waiver, because I couldn't get to the court. And the judge said, you know, this was being tried in Kingston. So I was paying New York rates, $320 an hour to my attorney. And Linda was paying Kingston rates, $120 an hour. She really had figured out how to screw me well. And the judge said, no, I'm sorry, we have ramps. We have wheelchair ramps here. Your husband could get here anytime he wants. Fuck the bitch. Are you kidding me? I have trouble getting out of my own fucking bedroom. I can't get up and down my stairs. If you tried to put me in a stretcher and take me down the stairs, by the time you got me down to the first floor, the bouncing up and down of going down those stairs would have me weak as a jellyfish. I would be in another relapse. And with this, it takes three months to overcome a relapse. The judge didn't give a shit. And there is no definition. There was no definition of what this illness was. There was no awareness. 
So I had an illness that didn't exist, meaning I wasn't ill. And then two months later, I mean, apparently I internalized the anger because I don't show anger most of the time. I very seldom show anger. And, and the anger against my wife was apparently producing a whole new kind of pain. And I couldn't stand to live from one second to the next. The day was an infinity of pains. And I just wanted to disappear. I didn't want to interrupt anybody's lives. I didn't want to make any inconvenience. So at night when I was going to sleep, I took every Valium in the house. I took 120 Valium. I, I had had the hiccups at one point for three days straight. And you know that, that that can kill you. And my doctor had stopped it with Thorazine. So I took 15 Thorazine. I still had leftover Thorazine. And uh, some doctor had left behind a, a bottle this big of uh, lidocaine. So I injected, because I'd been taught how to give myself a daily injection intramuscularly. I injected all five grams altogether of the lidocaine. And I had read the physician's desk reference, and it said if I did all of this, especially if I injected the lidocaine intravenously, that would be it. I'd be very successful at killing myself. Well, I didn't have the guts to try intravenous injection because I don't know how to do it. I just did an intramuscular injection. The result is that I lay in that bed for three days like a corpse. And I lay, oh no, I lay there like a corpse. That's what corpse. I was trying to explain. So I was trying to explain that it's not a figure of speech, laying there like a corpse. It turns out that your circulatory system is not just the blue and red overlays that you've seen illustrating the circulatory system. It's your whole body. The blue and the red stuff has an influence, but it's roughly a third of your circulatory system. The rest of your circulatory system works by turning you over at night, moving your legs, when you're in the doctor's office, making you tap your feet restlessly. All of that is your circulatory system at work. Well, I lay there without any muscle but my diaphragm moving for three days. And your blood, you never think of it, but you've got approximately two quarts of blood, and that weighs a lot. And your flesh, to use Michael Jackson's vocabulary, your flesh is as weak as an overcooked noodle. And the result is you're, you manage to hold on to your blood, despite its weight, only by circulating it. And if it stops circulating, you're in trouble. So I woke up three days later, again, having lain there like a corpse, no movement of the muscles at all, no circulatory movement. I woke up and I had holes in my chest where the blood had come out and in my neck where the blood had come out. So if I were not a Jewish Zionist atheist, I could have applied for sainthood in the Catholic Church. And I'd lost the use of three limbs because of ischemia, lack of blood circulation. I had partial use of my left arm and hand, and that was it. And my doctor came and made a house call, the same doctor who thanked me for teaching him about chronic fatigue syndrome. House calls were impossible in those days, period. But he made a house call anyway. So he sat again next to me. At, toward the foot of my bed, and he said, I have to send you for the following seven tests. And I basically said, fuck that. I can't even get up and down my stairs. And as I said, if you put me on a stretcher, 
by the time he got me down to the bottom steer, I'd be done for, period. I can't get to these offices. So I said, give me four days and I will get the use of my limbs back. Let me do it my way. And he said, yes. And so I learned how to stand on these legs that were not working, that were not innervated, that were like plastic, it's just plastic legs of a Barbie doll. And I learned how to stand and balance on them. And I learned how by jerking my hips back and forth, I could make them, make my legs do a semblance of walking. And I started walking to my front room and then to my back room. And each time I increased it, each day I increased the number of laps I did by one. Um, until I finally, on the pedometer, got up to nine miles a day. Just walking back and forth with legs that weren't working. And my theory was, if I catch this fast enough, the ischemia, and restore the blood flow, I will get these limbs back. And I got them back. I got my right arm back, and I got my legs back. And they're in perfect shape. I walk five miles a day now that I'm recovered. Well, there was a journalist I'd been put in touch with by somebody who was a fan of mine in Australia. He had been a fan of mine when I was running a battle against the witches of Washington, against Tipper Gore and uh, Susan Baker, the wife of the Secretary of State. And they were trying to basically put the music industry out of business through censorship. And I had ran a fight against them. And this kid had been raised by evangelical parents, kinds of people who were trying to put the music industry out of business, at least the rock and roll industry out of business. And he had admired me. He'd been following me in a rock magazine that had been covering my every move. He made contact with me and he interviewed me. Um, he said, can I do an interview? This is when I got my voice back. And um, I said, yes, and, but let's do it on Christmas Day, because Christmas Day, I'm going to feel incredibly isolated, um, even more than usual. So if, I'm, if we're talking on Christmas Day, it'll do me a lot of good. So we did, and he was working for a publication or uh, actually a website called disinformation.com, and the head of it was Richard Metzger. And I took, and so he copied Richard Metzger on all of our emails. And I looked up at one point what Richard Metzger did, and he did really extreme interviews with really extreme people. So I called, I was going crazy after I woke up from being almost dead. And the nights were incredibly lonely. I felt like a corpse. My body was cold and clammy and there was no one around. Everybody else was asleep. It was a nightmare. It was just horrid. So I called him and said, look, you do extreme cases. You want to walk with a walking corpse? Come out to my apartment at 11 o'clock tonight. And he came out to my apartment and we walked back and forth together. Well, with him taking notes um, until something like six o'clock in the morning. And he went back to his word processor and he wrote, I have met God and he lives in Brooklyn. Howard Bloom is the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Freud of the 21st century. Um, so that's where that line came from, which eventually he would repeat in a TV series that he uh, created for Channel 4 TV in Britain. 
So Channel 4 TV in Britain says I'm the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Ford of the 21st century. Amazing. So exactly what I want, but it's not necessarily possible. I'll do my best to live up to it for the rest of my life. So, and I would have done my best anyway, even if that had never been said. So when did you turn your attention or your intellect toward your chronic fatigue syndrome, your illness? Well, from the beginning, but there was nothing to chew on. There was no place to go. There was an article by Hillary Johnson that had appeared in Rolling Stone about something called Epstein-Barr, and she made it sound like the world's worst nightmare, and I was sure, you know, it's like, like everybody. Um, that's, that's horrible, and it would be awful for anybody to get it, but I'm not going to get it. It's rare. Well, I got it. Right, and and then they figured out it wasn't Epstein Barr because the Epstein Barr virus is in everybody, all of us. So there was no causal correlation. And I, to this day, to the best of my knowledge, and I do follow a bit of this, we don't know what CFS is caused by. We really don't know. It's been wildly popular to blame things on the immune system for the last thirty years. So people have been blaming blaming it on the immune system. That's just because the immune system happens to be there and is fashionable, and we all have one. There is no necessary connection. And in my case, what I've finally discovered, and this took a long time, everything would stress me. And if I got stressed, if I had a stress response, um, at first I'd feel, hey, wow, this is incredible. I'm strong enough to handle this. And then, whammo, it would flatten me. And it would take me four months to overcome a stress. So I was avoiding stress in every way I possibly could. The divorce, of course, was a major stressor that I couldn't avoid. And it meant that I was watching Golden Girls on TV to occupy myself, because Golden Girls is harmless, right? And I was reading stuff that was humorous and harmless. So one day I was watching Golden Girls. And you know how an Aristotelian plot structure works. You introduce the characters, but you don't need to do that on a running series. Everybody knows the characters. You introduce the dilemma, you unfold the dilemma, then you have the crisis, and then you have the climax. Well, the crisis in Golden Girls would sometimes set my stress response off. And it would take me three months to recover from an episode of Golden girls. I was reading, I was trying to read the blandest authors I could find, and the blandest author on planet Earth is James Thurber. And I love dogs. I adore dogs. So I had a James Thurber book about dogs. What could be more harmless? And I was doing well until I reached page 98. And on page 98, in one paragraph, there was a dog fight. That flattened me for four months. This is really hard for people who have not had that lived experience to understand, to sort of conceptualize how reading or watching a Golden Girls episode and where there's some conflict could have such a multi-month impact, disabling impact on physically on you. Well, here is what I came up with. Uh, based on discovering what drugs help pull me out of this. 
we have a stress handling system. If you go online and Google it, you won't find it anywhere because nobody's writing about it. And although I brought my mentor in neuroscience, Ted Coons, the guy who discovered what the hypothalamus does out here, and he brought a friend from Yale who's also a neuroscientist out here, and I described it to them and it made perfect sense. Or at least they were kind enough not to mock me while they were still in my apartment. And I had CFS after all, I got certain privileges. But okay, you have a stress handling system. And like many things in the body, it works on a Sherringtonian system. What is a Sherringtonian system? A Sherringtonian system is a balance between an exciter and an inhibitor. Uh, think of this as like a tachometer on your dashboard. And it has a green zone and it has a red zone. If your exciter is prevailing, the system goes over toward the red zone. If the inhibitor kicks in, you go back over into the green zone and you bounce back to normal. You, if, watch the next time, watch yourself internally. The next time a loud noise, a loud bang goes off. And watch your cognitive system in a half a second, trying to figure out what it is and being alarmed. Your alarm system is now in the red zone. And then realizing it's an automobile backfiring and your system goes back into the middle zone. Why? Because you have a, a chemical that's a stimulant and it's called glutamate. And you have another chemical that's an inhibitor. It's called GABA. So I started taking Valium. And I learned that, but remember those 20 seconds after you have a stress, 20 minutes after you have a stressor when you think, oh my God, I'm better. Just look how strong I am. No, never be deceived. You get a 20 minute window of opportunity in which to stop a stress response before it can happen or you're fucked. It's too late. If you take Valium within those first 20 minutes, if you discipline yourself not to listen to that voice in yourself that says, I must be getting better, um, and take your fucking Valium, for God's sakes, you can avoid a relapse. But if you miss that 20-minute window of opportunity, you are screwed. You're going to spend the next four months in bed too weak to do just about anything. Why? Okay, well, what eventually would I figure out? Oh, and then eventually we persuaded my CFS doctor to give me a prescription for oxytocin, which helped. And then I started using, thanks to getting a prescription for my CFS doctor, gabapentin. What do Valium, oxytocin, and gabapentin have in common? They all feed into the GABA system. They all feed into the inhibitor. So my CFS apparently came from the fact that my stress system was in hyperdrive all the time, and there was no inhibitor to stop it, none. So if I took Valium, it fed the inhibitory system and put me on normal. It put me on normal. Sometimes I had to take 27 Valium at a time to have that effect. And all it did, didn't make me tired, did not make me groggy. All it did was return me to normal. 
for a while. And at that same time, the Journal of the American Medical Association came out with a cover story saying that with chronic illness patients, um, sometimes overdoses of a drug could be the dose you need just to get back to normal. And that was my experience. So I now take 30 different drugs and supplements twice a day. It's a half an hour process. And some uh, of those you inject uh, intravenously? Yes, I inject intramuscularly. I inject a half a cc of magnesium, one cc of oxytocin, and two cc's of cyanocobalamin, which is liquid injectable vitamin B12. And it helps. And, and the oxytocin goes to the GABA system, the inhibitory system, in this stress handling response. And you've been on this regime since? Probably 1998. And slowly, 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 these drugs all work together to get me out of CFS. By 2003, I was able to get out of the house. Now, for the previous 15 years, I had periodically worked my way up by one stair a day to being able to do all the stairs in my house. I'm on the fourth floor. And then I had worked my way up by 20 feet a day going outside and walking up the block. And before I discovered this combination of drugs, I would get within three or four houses of the corner just by increasing it 20 feet a day. And, and then all of a sudden I would have a relapse and the whole episode of going outdoors would end. That was what was happening during my 15 years in bed. It happened maybe three times. But now once I had all these drugs in place, I could work my way up by 20 feet a day to walking. Sometimes I walk six miles. Wow. Um, a day. And do you know of anyone else who takes your regime? And no, is not a single, no, not a single one. One day I was at my chronic fatigue syndrome doctor's office once I was able to get out of the house. And he started showing me off to his patients as a model of what he can do. But he was misleading those patients because he has a regimen that's very different from mine. And it isn't his regimen that has saved him. In fact, I found the things that he was using to be useless. Because I, well, I would take a drug, I would take it for a while, I would see what its impact was. Now, you can't really tell. You know, when you're feeling a little bit better, it could be the food you're eating. It could be the social relationships you're in. You can't tell because you're, you're going up and down all the time. Just That's normal. Um, so I would take something, put it into my regime, see what the impact was, be confused about whether what I thought was the impact was really the impact of that drug, take it out to see what the impact of that was, put it back in again to see what the impact was. And, you know, when you've got 15 years in a bed, you have a lot of time in which to test a lot of things. And one of the things that's a standard for my doctor is uh, depressive. And I used cutopressin dutifully for a year, and it didn't do anything for me. So I discarded it. That's what my doctor uses. 
I'm the only one using my regime, except I got a phone call or an email or something at a certain point from a very good friend who hangs out in very exalted circles. And he said, the Duchess of Kent has what you have. Could you write her a letter explaining how to cope with it? So I wrote a pamphlet, 16 pages, for the Duchess of Kent. And then I started updating it. And the most recent version, I think, is from 2003. Because by then, I had worked out this regimen, and I, I was getting out of bed by that time. So it started as how to cope with your CFS. Realize you have a limited piggy bank of energy, that it's far, far, far less than you've ever had you should do, all the energy you have for today. And if you exceed that limit, you're in big trouble. If you try to travel, I have look, my the first thing my wife convinced a CFS doctor, Dr. Dirk and Land, to come to my apartment to see me. I could not get into a doctor's office to see any doctor. Dr. Susan Levine, who was famous as a CFS doctor at that point, required that you go into her office. Fuck that. Doesn't she know anything about chronic fatigue syndrome patients? So my wife convinced Derek and Leonard my apartment. He came to my apartment one evening with his fiance. They were going to a party together in Brooklyn. Most important thing he did was he handed me a scrap of paper. And on that paper was an email address. And he said, this is a patient of mine in Texas. I want you to get in touch with her. So I got in touch with her and we became friends via email. And online, we went out for treatment modalities. And I would find treatment modalities that my gut said were promising. I cannot tell you I worked out whether they were promising or not with my rational mind. I did not. It was my gut. She would track down the doctor who was using it, find out what his protocol was for the use of the drug, and we would get that back to my doctor, who was fortunate, you know, we could deal with via email, because he was way ahead of his time, his use of computer and the internet. He would sit on it for six months. Now, Scott, you know that every day's delay in taking something is intolerable because you want to get back to normal. You've been normal all your life. You think that some simple flick of the whip will get you back to normal. And it could be that flick that you've just channeled to your doctor. And he sits on it for six months. That's intolerable. What was he doing? A very human thing. He was digesting it and then burping it back up as his own idea. And then once it came back as his own idea, he would prescribe it. And I would try it through this methodical method that I just described to you, put it in, see what it does, take it out, put it in again, see with under, whether under different circumstances it has the same effect. If it does, keep it. If it doesn't, throw it away. And eventually I worked out this regimen. And the reason that the booklet, the last version of the book was, was written in 2003 is that's when I got out of bed. That's when I was able to finally resume normal. And now I do 1,220 pseudo push-ups a morning. They're actually like vibrations in midair. They're closer to planking than they are to real push-ups. I didn't know that until filmmakers started to come and film me doing it and said, you know, those are not really push-ups. 
And then I got my, I have a gorgeous Asian house guest and I had her sit on the floor and with her iPhone shoot me. And I was, I, I was astonished. My body had invented a whole new exercise that I didn't know existed. And my body had deceived me into thinking they were push-ups. But I do 1,220 of them a morning. That's huge. And I'm 76 years old. I walk five miles a day. And I'm 76 years old. When I have to go to the emergency room for a dog bite or something like that, the nurses make a game of me. They put me in a room by myself. And they snag physicians, assistants, and doctors in the corridor. And they drag them into the room. And they say, how old is he? And the doctors say, uh, 52. 55, no. 58, no. I'm 70 fucking six years old. And I am stronger in many ways than I was when I was 19. I certainly feel stronger and better than I've ever felt in my life. And I'm free of the chronic, I'm free of the clinical depression. Probably because of all the drugs. So it, it sounds like depression may be related to the. I don't think so. No, I think the depression is an entirely different thing, and and I suspect that the gabapentin is what's doing it, because it has shown properties, antidepressant properties, in other patients as well. And and one day, okay, I took a big chance. I was asked to keynote a conference in L.A. And with this illness. You have to see your invisible boundaries. They're totally invisible. And you have to nonetheless see them before you reach them and make sure you do not cross them or you are fucked. You are screwed. You are barbecued. And so I said yes to going to this conference knowing that it might be a step too far and I might be punished severely. And it worked. It worked out. It was brilliant. It was wonderful. It was terrific. Um, the audience was totally inspired. And so was the host of the conference who had asked me to do this. Totally inspired. And then I have a theoretical physics partner in Moscow with whom I communicated online via email at three in the morning or four in the morning. And we wrote a paper together. It was his idea on quantum physics. And uh, he got back to me with real exciting news online, which is we had been invited to address an international conference of quantum physicists in Moscow. Well, Scott, quantum physics is where I began at the age of 10. That's me. And this was like a homecoming for me. There's no way in hell I was gonna miss this. So I was on a plane and to Germany, where we were going to transfer to a plane to Moscow. And all the way to Germany, I was in incredible shape. I was euphoric, absolutely euphoric. And then we waited for the train or for the plane to Moscow um, in the German airport. We got on that plane, and halfway through the flight, I began to have chronic fatigue syndrome symptoms. And when we got into the Moscow airport, I was in very bad shape. And my assistant looked around for some place where I could lay down. And this is an airport where there are guys with AK-47s, automatic weapons, all over the place in uniform. It's scary. 
he found an infirmary. And the deal with the infirmary is I could lay down in the infirmary if I gave up my passport. Well, it is scary to give up your passport in Russia. Because if you don't have your passport, you're a non-human and can do anything they want with you. Anything they want. But I was desperate just to lay down. And I gave them my passport and lay in their bed in a room with people who only spoke Russian, who did not speak English. How my assistant communicated with them, I do not know. And then it occurred to me, I had been so fucking euphoric that I had forgotten to take my afternoon medicines. And I had my assistant get my gabapentin out of the suitcase. And I took the gabapentin and 15 minutes later, all of my chronic fatigue, surrender symptoms disappeared. And I was back to my new normal, which is better than I have ever been in my life. Wow. And what year was that, the Moscow trip? 2005. And that was the last time you've had a, a relapse? Yep. As I learned my lesson. Never go. And so I carry a spare supply of gabapentin with me wherever I go. Um, and I carry one spare supply in the pouch that I wear on my hip, which is down here. There's a pouch. Yeah. And I carry a big bottle of gabapentin in my knapsack, which goes with me everywhere because it has my computer. My computer is my life. So it is possible to to overcome chronic fatigue syndrome. Remember, I started taking all these things in 1998. I wasn't capable of getting out of the house and being normal until 2003. It took five years for these drugs to cumulatively work. So all of the folks, the millions of people that live with chronic fatigue syndrome or ME as it's also sometimes known as, They've got to be wondering, as I am, how come the researchers or healthcare systems haven't picked up on what you've learned? You're, you're pretty high profile. It's not like they wouldn't know about you. Well, I tried. You know, I was still locked in the bedroom, and I tried to explain this uh, to Ted Coons, who's the guy who discovered what the hypothalamus does. And he brought in another guy, a friend of his from Yale, who's also a neuroscientist. And I explained the stress handling system to them. As I am absolutely certain that what I've told you is true about how the stress handling system works. And they listened and it was credible, but I'm not an academic. So I don't have access to journals. And this is the last thing in the world I want to write about, Scott. I'm out of that woods. I'm out of that nightmare. I don't want to go back. Not at all. I don't even want to spend the 15 days it might take of immersion in the subject to write about this for a journal. Plus, no journal is going to accept me. No, I've been in journals. That's true. I've been, since I got out of bed, well, actually, since I, I, since I dropped out of the music industry in 1988 and went back to my real deal, which is my science, I've been published in 12 different scientific fields from quantum physics and evolutionary biology to information science and of all things, governance. And that's my goal in life is to be able to go fly across the face of the disciplines, see each discipline as a pixel and 
perceive the big picture that those pixels make. That's my task in life. That's my job. But I don't have access to any way in which to get this theory out in a credible manner. So it's limited access. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my energy is really flagging. <laughs> so what so have you had chronic fatigue syndrome is that how you got into this yeah yeah i have um, i call it me just because yeah like I said well before, that's my doctor ann lander was one of the men who popularized the use of the term myalgic encephalomyelitis yeah and i also have hiv which is oh, oh my god it is um, a it is a walk in the park. Double whammy. No, it's not a double whammy. <laughs> I have to correct people on this. It is not a double right. whammy. There's no equality in any shape or form between having ME and HIV, as long as you have access to medications for HIV. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, so we're I was both dependent a, uh, on daily medications. Yeah, I was uh, the first person living with HIV to compete at the World Triathlon Championship. So I Amazing. also put my body under a lot of stress Oh my God! Right. Of course, now I can't walk 15 minutes on flat ground, sort of thing. Wow. And one other question from JB, who connected us. Right. He was wanting to know if you. What is your sleeping pattern? Are you still doing the? Yes, that was very important. It's one of the things that got me to where I am today. I had incredible insomnia. I'd had incredible insomnia since I was 13 years old but it got worse with the CFS. And then I did a perceptual flip. Instead of trying to get my body to sleep eight hours a day because that's the norm in our society, and by norm, I mean an artificial value, I decided, okay, my, maybe my body is trying to tell me something. It doesn't want to sleep eight hours. Why don't I listen to my fucking body? So I arranged to start sleeping in two four-hour doses. And the result is I fall asleep as soon as my head hits the pillow. How do I know? Because I've always got the New York Times or MSNBC running while I sleep. And I know I do not hear. If I try to watch Rachel Maddow while I'm falling asleep, I'm sorry, I miss her argument totally. Because I fall asleep within her first two sentences. And I can't remember even those. So it turns out that listening to my body is a very important thing to do. And if my body wants to sleep in two four-hour doses, so be it. Fuck the norm. So will you set your alarm or will your body just naturally wake up after about four No, I, I have an alarm. You know, my cell phone does everything, like all of our cell phones these days. It's a miracle it doesn't go out and prepare the food for us. And my, so my alarm goes off. And I'm rearranging my time schedule, my sleeping schedule, because I have to make sure I get my time with the woman I love in South Africa. And so I have to make sure that the way I operate time is consistent with the way South Africa operates time. So and today is the day we changed our clocks. So I have to figure out how to change my alarm to make sure that I get to be with her without impairing my sleep. Right. It's, it's very important to you that you, uh, you're connected with her. So, and, and the deal is, I'm 76 years old. In June, I'll be 77 years old. Sounds like an old man, right? Sorry, fuck that. 
screw that. I'm sorry, I am not old. You know the band, The Cars. Mm -hmm. Their music is just marvelous. And Rick Ocasek died about six months ago, the founder of The Cars. And he died at the age of 75. And I realized that if I had died at the age of 75, I would never have known the astonishing, exhilarating ecstasies that I experienced with this woman. She's the first woman I've ever had a relationship like this with in my life. There are whole realms of emotional experience. Again, experience for which there are no words. But um, the experience is the closest to the divine I've ever experienced in my life. And I would never have known those realms exist inside of me, inside of her, inside of you. Never. I'm at 76, she's 50. So there's a huge age difference. But hell, my previous girlfriend who pursued me for two years, um, and I finally caved into her because I figured if she had the tenacity to pursue me for two years, she must know something about me and actually love me. My previous girlfriend was 19 when she started to pursue me. I was 21 when she became, through dint of her own efforts, my girlfriend. My, the woman I love, who's a mere 50, 26 years younger than I am, um, is age appropriate compared to the girlfriend that I had before. <laughs> so never let age get you. Never let age get you. And if you adjust your medications properly, age will not screw around with you. Well, that's a perfect place to end our conversation. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And I, I, I hear you when you don't really want to go back to the whole chronic fatigue syndrome thing. Um, so thanks for sort of making the exception and sharing your experience with that. Well, thank you, Scott. And give me the URL, send it to me, and I'll put it out to my faithful 15,000. Absolutely. It'll probably be about a month from now that it, it gets published. Okay, well, a month from now is when my book is coming out, although we haven't even mentioned my book. My book is called Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. And it's about a spiritual journey, but it's funny and filled with adventures and my spiritual journey in the rock and roll industry. Okay, well, you got that plug in. Yes. <laughs> okay, get some rest. Thank you, Howard. Take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye, Scott. Well, a big thank you for Howard Bloom for taking the time and energy to share his story about living with ME-CFS. And if you've not had an opportunity to read any of Howard's writing, now is the perfect time to pick up one of his books or grab his new book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you've had your own experience with medical error and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.